You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, help us now to find the stability and peace that we desire in your Son alone, our true King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I've always been fascinated by the British monarchy uh, there's something about uh, the kings and queens of England in our lifetime, the Queen of England, um, that has caught my attention. I think that the monarchy in England catches a lot of people's attention. That's why they're often in the tabloids. Uh, but the king and queen of England sometimes are sort of our monarchs, too. I mean, not that uh, we actually are beholden to them, but there's just something about them. Perhaps because we live in the English-speaking world, Um, It's the monarchy that makes the most sense to us. But I find that people who even have other language heritages are often uh, equally fascinated by the British monarchy. And part of our attraction to monarchy in general is a desire for stability and peace, that we want stability and peace in our lives. And that's what makes uh, Queen Elizabeth II, the current Queen of England, Uh, so great. She's been the queen for 57 years in England. And uh, indeed, this according to the great source Wikipedia describing her says that she is the longest lived and longest reigning British monarch as well as the world's longest reigning queen regnant and female head of state, the oldest and longest reigning current monarch and the longest serving current head of state, which is way too bad for Charles. I mean, he just turned 70. So even if she dies soon, which she probably will, she's in her 90s, uh, he's, even if he has her genes, you know, he's probably only going to serve for about 20 years. It'll probably be less than that. Um, but uh, that'll bring some stability, but not the sort of stability that uh, people sense with someone like uh, Queen Elizabeth. And we see her understanding of her role for the entire uh, United Kingdom and the Commonwealth uh, fictionalized in the show The Crown. I only, I've only seen the first season. I probably won't watch the others. But at least in the first season, you see that although she's powerless uh, in, in many ways, actually, uh, she does provide the UK with that sense of stability and peace, and she recognizes that as her role in uh, the first season of The Crown. I mean, the woman has had over 160 prime ministers serve under her reign in all the uh, provinces of the Commonwealth. 160, over 160, beginning with, you remember Winston Churchill? (laughs) He's been dead for 54 years, and she's still uh, the the queen. Uh, This desire that we have for political uh, stability and uh, peace that we often find in monarchs can be seen in the Bible, too. For several centuries, Israel in its beginning had no king other than God himself. It was a theocracy, but there was no human king. They had leaders in the patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac, and, or in prophets like Moses and Joshua, or in uh, the many judges like Gideon and Samson. Uh, But it's not until the age of Samuel, who's not only a prophet, but the final judge, according uh, to the scriptures, it's not until the era of Samuel that Israel finally demands a human king. And this is probably because they're living uh, next to other nations, immediate uh, neighboring nations, who did have 
kings that offered them that sense of stability and maybe even sometimes peace. And meanwhile, in Israel, in the era of the judges, there was a lot of instability and warfare. And not only that, they probably no longer want to be a nomadic tribe, but a nation state with some sense of permanence. And a human king uh, is what they look to to give them uh, that idea. And so Samuel does anoint a human king because God tells him, to give the people what they want. If you were here several weeks ago, I quoted one of my mentors, Bishop Salmon. Remember, he used to say, if that's what you want, that's what you should have. Well, that's what God says. If that's what you want, Samuel, give it to them. Anoint the king, even though this isn't actually in their best interest. And this is because things go badly with the first king, with King Saul, who eventually loses his mind offering no stability or peace. And therefore, God takes matters into his own hands and he redeems the office of the king of Israel by putting the throne into one family permanently, namely the family of David. Now, David and his offspring, as you well know, were far from perfect. But inherent to the lineage of David is a promise that eventually a son of David will be the rightful and true and eternal and perfect king. Not only for Israel, but he would be a blessing for all nations. Which brings us to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Like all the Gospels, Matthew has his emphases. Each of the Gospels have a lot of similar material, but they have their own sort of thematic emphases. And two of Matthew's emphases, there are others, but two of them are kingship and citizenship, or what Jesus calls being one of his disciples. Uh, To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a citizen of his kingdom. And these uh, themes uh, explain all that's going on in chapter 2 that we read today with the story of the Magi from the East. And when these wise men Uh, come from uh, foreign nations uh, to visit this uh, promised king, the the child on Mary's lap. Before you get to chapter 2, though, it's helpful to know uh, that chapter 1 is one of several genealogies of Jesus Christ. And I'll argue that there are three. There's another obvious one in Luke chapter 3, but we talked last week about John chapter 1, which is sort of John's genealogy. And again, each of these three genealogies uh, have different emphases. Uh, Matthew's differs from Luke's, which emphasizes that Jesus uh, is a son of Adam, highlighting his human nature. And Matthew also differs from John 1, uh, which highlights Jesus's divine nature, with uh, Jesus being the exact imprint of the Father, the very Word of God, and therefore God himself. And meanwhile, Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, what does this mean? According to Matthew, this genealogy communicates two things. First of all, it communicates that Joseph, uh, Mary's uh, fiancé in this chapter and later to be her husband, that Joseph, who's a direct descendant of David, is the rightful king at the time of Israel. Have you ever thought about that? That that's what Matthew's getting across. That in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, Joseph, in the line of David, in the line of all these other kings, is the rightful king of Israel. 
But no descendant of David has been on the throne since the exile. And now on the throne is Herod the Great, who, who is not a descendant of David. Uh, he's in power because of his uh, family's cooperation with Rome, who ruled the, the region of Palestine at the time. And for two centuries uh, prior to the birth of Jesus, there's been anything uh, but stability and peace, uh, or very little. It's, it's true that Herod might have offered some people some sense of stability, Uh, Often the greatest tyrants offer some stability to some of the people, some of the time, but sometimes no stability to a lot of the people. For example, if you were a two-year-old, say circa 4 BC in the city of Bethlehem, you would have had no stability. Uh, You probably would have fled to a place like Egypt. Um, And so you see this uh, with Herod, that he's uh, ruling with an iron fist. And the second thing that uh, Matthew's genealogy communicates, the first one being that Joseph is the the, the rightful uh, king, according to the lineage at the time. The second one is, therefore, that Jesus, uh, the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham, uh, this means that he is the rightful heir to the throne because he is the adopted son, humanly speaking, of Joseph. Which, by the way, this is entirely my speculation here. I should have looked this up, but it's a nice way to articulate it, maybe, unless I'm wrong. This might explain why Jesus waited a while to start his public ministry, that he was waiting for Joseph to die. We don't hear anything uh, about him beyond uh, Jesus' adolescence. Uh, And so uh, it's there in uh, Matthew chapter 3, following this chapter, when he's an adult, that John the Baptist says, the kingdom of God is at, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, so anyway, uh, there you have it. There's uh, no record of Joseph living behind, beyond Jesus's boyhood. So to say the least, he's the king. In the same way that Joseph was uh, the rightful uh, king, so is Jesus. So you have to imagine the beginning of Luke's gospel and the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Bear with me here is a lot like the beginning of the Disney movies Bambi and the Lion King, okay? Because do you remember how Bambi starts? That Bambi is the heir to the throne of the prince of the forest. The prince of the forest is still alive. He's the, uh, the uh, magisterial buck, you know? Um, and all the animals of the forest come to bring, you know, to celebrate and bring gifts to the young prince, as Thumper calls Bambi, right? Or you might think of the Lion King, which starts with Simba's birth, but Mufasa, the king of the jungle, is still alive, and yet all the animals come from the jungle and the savannah to celebrate the birth of Simba, and the, uh, the, the monkey priest breaks open the fruit and anoints him with the juice and throws dust on his head, right? Um, but, but, Sim, but Mufasa is still the king. It's not until the prince of the forest and Mufasa finally uh, die that they uh, take over those roles. And so, in a similar fashion, here we are in Matthew chapter 2. And that's what's going on with the, the Magi coming uh, from the, the east to celebrate this new king. 
And all of this is, uh, of course, therefore, in the background of the arrival of the, the, these wise men, that sometimes people call kings, the, the three kings, they, they, they probably weren't. They were probably more accurately called wise men. And by the way, there's no record of there being three. There are three gifts, but there could have been two magi who brought three gifts. Maybe there were 17 who brought three of the same gifts. We don't know. Um, but there were plural uh, wise men and these wise men were not just students of uh, astronomy, of the stars, of astronomical phenomena, but they were also students of the scriptures. They were students of ancient texts, including the Hebrew Bible, in which there's prophesied this promised king of Israel announced by this star in the sky in the city of Bethlehem, as we see the promise in uh, Micah that's quoted in Matthew chapter 2, which describes this king as not only a ruler, but a shepherd, like his ancestor David, meaning that he would not only offer stability, but peace, in the same way that a shepherd can offer peace to his sheep. So Herod here in this story uh, ends up being a sort of foil which means a contrast, an opposite to this new and true king. Herod is a ruler, but that's all he is, ruling with an iron fist. He's no shepherd, uh, so there's no true peace for all the people of Israel. He's a king of power demonstrated by wealth and demand. You know, when he tells people to come, when he beckons them, they come. On the other hand, Jesus would be a king of power demonstrated through weakness, poverty, humility, and and servanthood. Also, Herod's only a man, and so he's going to die anyway. The situation is uh, temporary, no matter how powerful he appears to be. By the way, according to history, Herod died one year after this story, just one year later. Of a, a ter- apparently of a terrible disease that's been called Herod's Evil. And I looked this up, and this is fictionalized in the book I, Claudius by Robert Graves. And so this is a fictional description. But hey, it's great. This is the sort of death that he perhaps died. And the description of the symptoms that Herod uh, had a year later on his deathbed, vomiting, put- putrescent stomach, corpse-like breath, Maggots breeding in the privy member and a constant watery flow from bowels causing inflamed madness. Now, this, this is the guy that, you know, was uh, trying to have Jesus killed and had all the power. And that's the description of his natural uh, uh, death one year later. So the reality of political powers uh, being uh, temporary is, is seen here. And I saw this uh, for myself. This was highlighted for me several years ago when I was living in Washington, D.C. At the time, I was really intrigued by, by politics and the government because you can't help it being in the capital city. You're constantly, and we actually lived in Washington, D.C., not too far from Capitol Hill and the mall and all of that. When you're living there, you're just constantly confronted with the government and federal authorities, military presence. I mean, the, the helicopters that the Marines have that serve as Marine One for the president would do, and there are several of them, they would do flight exercises over my house. They would just, like, hover sometimes. 
or there'd be motorcades that would go down the street, and you'd be in some like auditorium like this, you know, where someone's speaking, and they have these devices that kill all the electronic, you know, communication devices, and you'd have to reboot it. Um, so you're just constantly aware of uh, of the government, and this fascinated me. So I started following politics in a new way, especially because I was there during the 2008 election cycle, and then. Uh, I was there for the 2009 inauguration. I mean, we were living just a few blocks away from the National Mall. You can't do anything else that day. Hey, let's go down uh, and, uh, you know, when else am I going to see a presidential inauguration? Well, we had to walk there because all the streets are closed down. And we're walking by tanks in the street and Humvees and guys with automatic, you know, rifles. Uh, and this massive, massive crowd on, on the, uh, the, the mall there. And one memory that I'll have that day uh, that will remain with me, this vivid memory that I have, is when uh, at Barack Obama's inauguration, George W. and Laura Bush got onto one of those marine helicopters and, and flew away. And they flew, we're standing by the uh, Washington Monument, and they flew directly over our heads. And as they're approaching, of course, a lot of the people there were Obama fans, and they started shouting, na, 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 na. Hey, 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 goodbye. And I remember looking up as the, the helicopter, while this is going on, slowly uh, flying by, and I thought, is that it? You know, is that it? Is that all there is? I mean, eight years, he served two terms, and it actually didn't seem that long. And here he's just flying away, leaving his office and, and residence, and a new, uh, a new guys, a new sheriffs in town, and of course Obama's come and gone. And now we have Trump, and we've already had midterm elections. And did you know that the Iowa caucuses are in less than 13 months? Can you believe it? The, the situation in our world of uh, politics, no matter what they are, is always uh, temporary. And I wonder what your attitude towards politics is. I mean, every way, everyone has a way of thinking about politics, even if you're apathetic towards it. It is a disposition, whether it's placing a tremendous amount of uh, hope in politics, being apathetic towards it, as I said, or angry, or some combination of all these things. And this is no small topic in our day. I mean, this is often the divisive uh, issue for sometimes close relatives, because the way that we vote sometimes represents so much more, that we're in our um, sort of rhetorical echo chambers. The problem, though, is that people are placing way too much stock in politics, government officials and elections, uh, to give them the stability and peace that they desire. We'll all eventually, no matter what's going on, end up like me looking up at that helicopter and thinking, is that it? Is that, is that all there is? Because even our best politicians are affected by the fall and sin, and they are temporary. And don't get me wrong, I think we ought to take these things seriously and approach them with maturity. But at least my uh, experience there on the National Mall helped me to uh, take it with a certain level of a, a grain of salt. And as a result, actually, it allows me to love my nation more uh, be, because of this. And to put my, my final hope in my true king, uh, who is eternal and does offer the stability and peace. No matter how good things are going or how bad we perceive them to be, it's all temporary, as I say. 
President Donald Trump is just a man. Queen Elizabeth II is just a woman. They all use the bathroom, and they'll all end up in a coffin. Or if the emperor of China, uh, Japan, you'll end up being cremated. Or you'll, they'll just end up flying by in a helicopter, leaving before that. So if you put your hopes and stability, uh, for stability and peace in presidents and politics, you will eventually grow disillusioned, disappointed, or duped. But if you recognize that you were made for citizenship in an eternal country with a permanent king who not only rules but also cares for you, you will actually have the stability and peace that you desire. Even if you live in the absolute worst of times of gridlock, warfare, oppression, and even genocide, these things might test our faith, but it's been uh, those who have recognized they were made for a better country and a better king who've been able to make it through these experiences with their wits about them. Just take my pastoral uh, 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 hero, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hung to death in a Nazi concentration camp by a piano string just a couple weeks before the end of World War II. I mean, talk about futility. But there he was, knowing that he was going to die the day of his death. And like the Magi, that day he read the scriptures, he led a worship service with his fellow inmates, and he offered the gift of his life to his king. And this is what Matthew wants to get across to us in the telling of this story. The way he describes uh, citizenship and the kingdom of heaven is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. As much as Matthew is obsessed with Jesus as the king, he's equally obsessed with us being disciples of this king. So here's my final thought uh, for you tonight. The story of Matthew doesn't end with chapter 2 that we've had today. Of course, it ends with Matthew chapter 28. And after Jesus Christ rose from the dead and confirmed that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him, therefore he's the king of the universe. After this, his disciples recognized him, and like the, the magi, they fell on their faces and grabbed hold of his feet, and they worshipped him not only as their king, but also as their God. And so I say to you, Recognize that your true king has gone to war on your behalf. And he was enthroned on his cross. And there he defeated all powers of sin and evil for you. And then he rose from the dead and conquered the powers of death for you. Bringing you eternal stability and peace that will never shut down. So like the Magi and the disciples... Fall down on your face, grab hold of his feet, and worship your God and King who cares for you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.